everybody, and welcome back. It's episode 95, I believe, of the Cold Beer and Cool Movie Podcast. Hello, my name is Dustin. And I'm Lakeisha. And that's what you are all looking for, the return I'm of back. Lakeisha to the podcast after my solo effort last week. I know. So so I have to ask you, what was yeah. it like doing this podcast solo? Um, I've, It was hard in that I kept worrying that I'm just rambling. Am I just going to sound like a crazed person? Especially considering the movie I saw, which was a bit of next level insanity. Yes. You know, Midsommar is super weird. So I just wondered, I just worried if I was going to come off as the ramblings of a lonely, insane man. Okay. But I don't think it was quite that bad. Well, I am glad to hear that. Um, but, I mean, did you feel... Was it interesting not having somebody to to talk to about the movie, or what did well, you think? I don't know what interesting because when I decided I wanted to do a podcast, the one thing that I needed to have to do it was was you. I wanted I doing a podcast by myself was something I was never interested in. I always wanted it to be a conversation, you know, mm-hmm. to talk to somebody. So this one instance of doing it by myself, I was very nervous about it. You know, uh, and I know I did listen back to it, which is always a little makes me feel a little cringy when I do that. Uh, but no, I think it was all right. Um, and I tried to try to be funny, you know, and uh, yeah, I, I maybe over explained that movie a little too much. I pretty much gave a, a blow by blow description of how it ends for everybody. Just, but that's probably because that movie's so weird. Well, I think all of us are um, understandably uh, nervous about hearing ourselves, um, you know, being recorded. I think any time I've heard myself on a recording, be it um, a video I'm recording on my phone where I am like narrating or speaking in the background or Uh listening back to one of our podcasts or any of the other times where I've you know, been recorded and had to listen to myself later, I always feel self-conscious, you know, yeah. and I'm like, oh, is is that what I sound like? I don't know, you know, so, um, but good job doing solo uh, and carrying the, the torch while I was gone and keeping everything going and flowing yeah. smoothly. Um, you also saw another movie while I was gone uh, yeah. that we didn't do a podcast on, but I feel like I want to ask you about it. Uh-huh. Um just to kind of get your take on it. You went and saw... I went and saw Crawl. Yeah. Okay. And normally we do recommendations at the end, but we'll go ahead and I'll do that now. Oh, is that going to be your recommendation? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, Crawl it was a lot of fun. It's. Uh, it, I think I needed a movie like that after seeing the two and a half hour art weirdness that was Midsommar, <laughs> where Crawl is a tight 88 minute, uh, you know, creature feature you know, killer alligator movie. Right. And it's a lot of fun, uh, especially like, uh, you know, the it seems like the big movie chains, at least over here where we live, do a discount movie night every mm-hmm. week, Tuesday nights or cheap nights. And that's when I went and saw it on Tuesday night. I think it was perfect for that. <laughs> uh, a lot of fun, a lot of fun, you know, jump scares, you know, a lot of, you know, it's like Jaws, except alligators and, you know, in a in the middle of a hurricane right you know so there's a lot of good you know kind of suspense where you know uh this fool is about to get eight 
okay. know, and uh, yeah. So, and especially, I forget the lead actress's name. Or this movie could have easily been kind of goofy, like a wink and a nod. Did you ever see that? You saw that movie, Lake Placid, yes. with Oliver Platt. It could have easily been like that. But the lead actress takes it a million percent seriously. Oh. And she is in it to be dead serious and be terrified. And she's essentially, it's about her rescuing her dad from the hurricane and alligators get in the way. Okay. And uh, yeah, and she's a million percent you know, dedicated to, to the thing. And it's, she's really good and it's really good. And I, it was, I thought it was a lot of fun. Okay. Well, there we go. There's your recommendation mm-hmm. at the beginning. Yes. Cool. All right. Well, uh, this week, um, we went and saw another, at least for me, another really long movie. Yes. It was a long movie for sure. And I'm but look- all of his movies are long. That's true. Um, I'm looking forward to this because it seems like most of the time when we see a movie, we're both kind of like, yep, that was great. Dig it. Maybe we'll go see it again. Or we're both like kind of on the same page as, well, that wasn't very good, was it? Right. Uh, I'm interested in this one because I think we're both a little unsure how we feel about this movie. Yes. A bit. For sure. Um, I'm still unsure about exactly what I'm going to say. So, uh, but yeah, we went and saw the the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. Uh, Starring Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, Margot Robbie, a bunch of other familiar faces. Right. So yeah, looking forward to getting into what we, how we feel about this movie. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I have a lot of, I mean, well, maybe, or maybe not interestingly enough, definitely complicated thoughts. Yes. Conflicting thoughts about this. Same. Same. So. Okay. Um, okay, but first, we get to talk about the beers we're drinking. And, yes, we are. Um, I am going to go first, uh, but then I'm really excited for you to talk about your beer, because uh, your beer is green. Blue-green, to be green, exact. Yes. Uh, mine is not. Mine is red. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I am drinking Frogman's Imperial Red Ale, um, which is... Uh, out of Braveheart Brewing. Okay. So Braveheart Brewing is interesting. They are um, a veteran-owned business. Oh, okay. And their mission is to create craft beer that truly tastes good and does good. Um, they have just a few beers that are created. And if you're wondering what that weird noise is in the back, Sassy the podcast dog has decided that she really needs attention for some reason. Oh, man. So maybe we just need to go on pause, pause for it. a moment and yeah. get her settled down. We have a 150-pound dog that's in the way. So hold on just a second. Okay, so we are back. Um, our 150-pound baby is settled um, and hopefully will sleep for the remainder yes. of this podcast. Uh, so I was interrupted as I was talking about Braveheart Brewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Braveheart Brewing is a veteran-owned brewery um, that comes out of Bend, Oregon. And in fact, um, they're not, they don't seem to be very big. There's not a lot of information out there. Yeah. But um, they're, they seem to have some relationship with Silver Moon Brewing because okay. that's actually who cans their beer. Oh, okay. So it's very cool. Um they, uh, as I said before we were interrupted, um, their mission is to create craft beer that truly tastes good and does good. So um, they only have uh, four beers out there. Yeah. And each one supports a different foundation. 
um, a military foundation, which yeah. I think is very cool. So I am drinking uh, the Frogman in Imperial Red Ale. Um, and these, uh, this sales from these beers um, support the SEAL Family Foundation, which is an organization designed to support um, the uh, kind of improve the health and welfare to enhance resiliency, empower and educate families of SEAL members, mm-hmm. Navy SEAL members, and to provide critical support during times of illness, inner injury, loss, and transition. Um, so that's very cool that, you know, like when you support this beer, you're supporting this foundation. Yeah. Um, it, they have a Semper Fi American Wheat. Uh, they also have a Intrepid Hero IPA and a uh, POW MIA Pilsner. Pilsner. Um, and again, each of their beers supports a different um, military foundation mm-hmm. that's, um, that supports military members and their families. So um, I, pretty cool. I'm yeah. really glad that um, I decided to spend money and support, uh, purchase this beer and support these causes. Um, the beer itself is pretty good. I We've talked before on this how I like a nice, strong, hoppy beer. Mm-hmm. Um and this only has 49 IBUs, so it's not the hoppiest that I've ever had, um, but it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and so it's definitely something I would drink again. Yeah. Um, but it's a little bit milder than what I'm used to. Yeah. So uh, anyway, that's what I'm drinking okay. uh, from Braveheart Brewing out of uh, Bend, Oregon, and the Frogman Imperial Red Ale. Okay. Now, I am having something from uh, Gigantic Brewing mm-hmm. from here in Portland. We've talked about Gigantic Brewing uh, multiple times before. Right. One yeah. of our favorites. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll actually be hosting trivia there on uh, the 14th of August, Ooh. if anyone wants to come check that out. Um, and uh, the, the last time, I'm pretty sure it was the last time we had something from Gigantic, it was at the start of their Hellboy series. Right, they're doing a series right. of Hellboy-themed beers celebrating the 25th anniversary of the publication of Seed of Destruction. Um, and this is the fourth in that series of beers. I am having the Abe Sapien Indigo Blue Beer, or Indigo Blue Pale, as it says on the website, based on the character Abe Sapien. And what is interesting about this, when they say it is a blue beer, they ain't lying. Right. It comes out of the bottle, and it is bluish green. Mm-hmm. It looks like... Kool-Aid. It looks like Abe Sapien. Yeah, it is the it is absolutely the color of the character. I mean, perfectly so. And so I had to get it. Um, it says on the bottle, uh, we give you unique a unique species that bursts with citrus and berry hop flavors infused with natural indigo. The best the results is a lush, vivid blue beer, and. You know, I got it because you know it's based on a comic book character, a character that I really like, and but ultimately I was like, this is going to be some weird fruit beer nonsense that I'm ultimately not going to care for. And then I poured it out, poured it in a glass, sm- give, smelled it. And I was like, well, this actually smells a little bit like an IPA, and you know what? It tastes pretty good. It does. I like it quite a bit. It's six point six six percent alcohol by volume. All the beers. <laughs> Well, almost all the beers in this series are all are six point six six right percent because you know hell demons and all that. Um, but yeah, it is. But like the when we did this before, I did the Hellboy 
beer that they made, which was a uh, pancake and maple syrup flavored beer. Yeah. And I don't know that I would have that again. Uh, but this, I would definitely have more of this. Even mm-hmm. though it looks way weird, it tastes like a very solid, you know, they don't call it an IPA. But it's, you know, probably one of the best. If it's just, if it's considered just a straight pale ale, it's one of the better straight pale ales I think I've ever had. Right. And yeah, just how cool would it be to have to go order this at a pub and have that colored beer come out the tap instead of the regular, you know, kind of goldish flavor? I agree. I do think we sort of need to go uh, to Gigantic and see if this is untapped just so we can order it. Yeah. So, but hey, we'll be there soon. But yeah, if you see a bottle of it and you see that it says, calls it a blue beer, just don't be, you know, they they're that's not the hyperbole. Right. So yeah, it's definitely, I really like it. Very good. I will say that I am excited um, to go back at, or coming up is the uh, Blood Queen Sour. It's a yeah. cranberry yuzu sour. I actually am really excited about trying that. Okay. Um, I, I actually kind of like sours overall. So, you know, small amounts. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to it. I, okay. curiously, I've never done a sour on the podcast. I don't, I don't think either of us ever have. Maybe that's coming. Because 50% of us think they're gross. Yes. And the other 50% don't. Most yes. of the time. Most, okay. So, um, I'm also intrigued by the Johann Krauss Citrus Wit. Yeah, that's already come out. So right. maybe they'll have some extras. When when we're there, when I'm there to host trivia. Well, I'm pretty sure when we were at the um, oh, they had it. We picked the, these up at AB. Yeah, AB ABV ABV uh, Tap House, and I think they had some of those. Yeah, they did. So, all right. Okay, so we've talked about your solo adventure. Yep. Um, we've talked about our beers. Mm-hmm. Time to talk about the movie. Once upon a time in Hollywood, and. Most of the time when I ask this question on the podcast, I already know the answer. This time I'm unsure. So, did you like this movie? I'm not sure. I'm still not sure, actually. Um, But I realized I feel that way about all of Quentin Tarantino's movies. Mm -hmm. Um, So, first of all, I'm shocked that this is only his ninth film. Yeah. You know, for some reason it feels like he's just been around forever. You know, um, and he, like the majority of his movies, sometimes maybe I feel guilty about liking them sometimes. Yeah. I don't I mean, I don't know if that makes any sense. I would say my favorite is probably Kill Bill. Oh, it's easily mine. Right. Um, volumes one and two. I really enjoy them. Mm-hmm. I probably enjoy volume one a little bit more than volume two. Yeah, me too. Um, and then after that, I... I like Reservoir Dogs, I yeah. have to say, with a question mark in my voice. Yeah. Because I don't know if it's a movie that you like. But it's good. It's yeah. well done. It is. Um, but otherwise, um, Quentin Tarantino movies always leave me feeling very conflicted. Um, sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, he's a great storyteller. And then his shocking violence like yeah. startles me and kind of throws me into like a... A movie violent coma for a little bit. Um, so there's a lot about this movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that I like. Right. And I have to be, like, full disclosure, I knew almost nothing about this movie when I said I wanted to see this. When I told you, like, oh, yeah, let's go see this movie. Because um, I'd seen 
the previews. Right. So I knew that it had Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt mm-hmm. and then several cameos of other famous people that I enjoy, you know, and that Quentin Tarantino tends to work with, you know. Um, and so I was intrigued, but I legit had no idea right. where he was going to go with this movie mm-hmm. walking in. Yeah. So um, I... He's a good storyteller, you know? Um, is he? I would see. <laughs> this is one of my problems with Tarantino. I mean, he can be, and sometimes he is, but sometimes it's almost like he chooses to not be. Mm. Okay. You know, and that's, I think, one of my biggest problems with him. It's like he's more interested in doing cool stuff than he is in telling a story. Okay. But that's not for every movie either. Like, I think that's why I love Kill Bill so much, is it definitely has a story he's trying to tell that ends with a resolution, you know. Right. As opposed to, like, uh, like this movie. Right. And to some degree, Pulp Fiction, where just a bunch of stuff happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's true. I mean, it's really kind of a, um, you know, I want to say, like, a day in the life of... Except it it spans six um, months. Six months. Yeah. But it's interesting because it kind of spans three days, right? And then jumps, jumps forward six yeah. more six months. Right. Um, but I do think you know there's sometimes that kind of story is okay, is okay. Oh it's sure. It's very different I'm, than I'm, a lot of what we do. Right. Um, but yeah, it's but the, yeah, it was just unsettling. And um, spoiler alert: we will talk about spoilers in this movie. Yeah. We were halfway. Uh, easily through this movie before I turned to you and was like, wait, is this about the Manson family? Because uh, I legitimately, like I said, I knew I knew very little yeah. about this movie. I knew that it was about um, late 1960s right. Hollywood actors mm-hmm. and that it had Margot Robbie in it. Um, that That's really yeah. the limits to what I knew about this movie. So um, finding out that it kind of that it involved Char- uh, Charles Manson and the Manson family and the Manson murders was like a huge shock to me. Okay. Um, I would say uh, whether or not I like this movie, I would answer it by saying mostly. Mm. Um, I knew a little bit more. I knew Margot Robbie was cast as Sharon Tate, you know, the, who, the real life actress who was, you mm-hmm. know, pregnant when she was horribly slain by the Manson family, along with a bunch of her friends. Um, and so, and also in one of the trailers, knowing that, and then in one of the trailers, you see an actor that looks too much like Charles Manson to be a coincidence. So I knew it had something to do with it, but I didn't know to what end. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So for a lot of the time, I, f- I also was unsure how that was all going to play out. Right. But I knew it was a part. So, yeah, um, it's funny because for the most part, I will watch trailers of movies to kind of gauge, does this look entertaining or interesting? Um, but with very few exceptions, do I do a lot of advanced research right. in them? Um, sometimes something will catch my eye and I'll be curious. So I'll start looking it up. You mm-hmm. know, for example, um, we should do Serenity at some point in time as one of our podcasts. I thought we did. Did we do Serenity? I think so. Oh my gosh. Well, we have done 95. Yeah. So it's hard to remember. Um, but so that I love that movie. 
Mm-hmm. I and but part of the reason I love that movie is when I first saw the trailers for that, I was like, oh, I feel like I should know more about that, and I vaguely recalled watching an episode on TV, mm-hmm. you know, of a trailer that was similar or of a show that was similar to that that trailer. So I did a bunch of research, and by the time I went and saw Serenity, I was like all in, and you know. I'm practically ready to sign up for the brown coats. Um, <laughs> but most of the time, you know, I go to movies to learn about them and to enjoy them while I'm there. And right. I don't like doing too much advanced research because there's so many people out there who have so many conflicting opinions. And I just want to go and make up my own mind. So, yeah, I was surprised that the Manson family had anything to do with this movie. <laughs> so... Okay, so are we ready to get into it then? Yes. All right. Well, uh, again, we've already said, spoiler alert for what we're about to talk about regarding uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, we won't hold back on those sorts of plot details. We've each come Not up, at all. Uh, we've each come up with our, uh, three of our favorite things about the movie. We haven't shared them with each other until now. We'll go back and forth sharing those favorite things uh, and then get into some other things after the fact. But, uh, but yeah, anyway, we're going to do that. Uh, and since you are freshly back uh, from the Great White North, uh, you get to go first. Okay. Uh, and just so you know, that was not Canada. No. no. <laughs> Farther north. Um, so the first thing that I have to say that I enjoyed about this movie was the friendship between Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton. Mm-hmm. Cliff uh, Booth pl- being played by Brad Pitt. And Rick Dalton by Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, I think in in a standard movie format, you would expect the plot to be about conflict between an overly spoiled actor and his poor, bereaved stunt double. Right. Uh, but that's not this movie. No, which is a little... I mean, I suppose, considering it's Tarantino, I shouldn't have been surprised by that. Right. Um and I, I will have to say that's something I like about Tarantino is sometimes he he surprises me and my expectations. What do you mean? What's going on? Go lie down. Go lie down. Um, so yeah, so this would be, it would be easy to kind of fall into the movie plot of this being about an unhealthy relationship between a spoiled brat actor abusing his poor stunt double. Um, but it's not, they, they have genuine respect for each other. Mm -hmm. Um, Cliff, it's alluded that he's an, a war hero. Um, and that, um, Rick is, is really trying to get him work. You know, and that he he appreciates what Cliff does for him, and that um, you know Cliff Cliff is kind of a pariah because, yeah. as we learn through the movie, it's room, heavily uh, insinuated that he may have gotten away with murdering his wife. Right. Um, and so um, people don't want to work with him, but because he's Rick Dalton's stunt, stunt double, he does get work. Rick encourages people to hire Cliff right. as his stunt double. So you have an actor who is who is trying to support this, you know, his stunt double. 
And in return, Cliff is, is pretty easygoing and doesn't has no problem just driving Rick around every day to all of his jobs, um, working on his, his uh, house, staying at his house when Rick is gone. Um, and so the majority of this movie is kind of their interactions. Mm-hmm. And you keep waiting, or I think as an audience member, I kept waiting for the plot to twist in terms of them getting into a fight and <laughs> arguing and storming away and then realizing, no, they need each other, you know, and, and that just doesn't happen. Their relationship right. is genuinely kind of, um, it, it, it's a, it's a, a real benef- mutually beneficial relationship where they yeah. care about each other. Mm-hmm. Um, when Rick finally, decides that he you know he doesn't need a stunt double anymore um you know he's he sits him down that he has that conversation and he's getting married they're settling down um and then and then they go out drinking for like a last hurrah you know right. type of thing but rick is also very upset at this idea that he's going to be losing cliff after this long relationship that right. they have um so it's just really it's a good um, part of the story that I like. And on reflection, I like it even more because I kept expecting the typical Hollywood conflict point where this, whether it may not have been the main plot, but that somehow they were going to have a falling out as a subplot right? in this movie. And that just doesn't happen. Yeah. And I liked that. I found that very refreshing that you can just have two people who have a friendship and it works. Yeah. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be a plot point. Yeah. So I liked that. And not just a friendship. It's. I think it's. It kind of implied that. Uh, that uh, Dalton is paying Cliff. Mm-hmm. You know that he's essentially kind of employing him. Right. You know to be his driver and do stuff for him since he's not being able to get work as a stuntman anymore. And so, but that easily could have been in a lesser movie, you know, jealousy, mm-hmm. you know, would have been an issue, right? And, uh, but yeah, it was kind of neat that it was how they, you know, uh, Cliff, the stuntman, ultimately is super supportive. Right. You know, of, uh, of, of Rick and his career and trying to, you know, say the right things and help him out when he's, you know, yeah. not feeling uh, not so confident. Well, and they there's a there's a portion where Rick um, Cliff drops Rick off at work, and Rick even apologizes and is like, "I couldn't get you on set right. because this is who the stunt coordinator is, and his wife hates you," you know. But Cliff just takes it super like, "Yeah, okay, that makes sense." And that's the that's the flashback scene. They have that as a flashback, flashback inside a flashback, right? Yeah, and I just think. Um, you know, but when the flashback is over, Cliff just kind of shrugs and is like, yeah, I guess I could see why uh, yeah. he wouldn't want to work with me anymore. And that's why I'm on his roof fixing his TV antenna and not being a stuntman right now. Right, yeah. exactly. So, um, but anyway, so I, I appreciated that mm-hmm. because it was so unexpected and yet very refreshing. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. All right. For my first favorite thing... Um, and it's a scene, it's kind of like what you're saying, but I picked like a specific scene. And it's actually, this is my favorite little bit in the movie. And it's very short, mm-hmm. very small. Um, so 
this takes place after a very kind of long sequence that involves uh, Rick Dalton uh, being a guest star on a new Western, mm-hmm. right? He spends an entire day filming. And they get back home to Rick's house, and they sit down, and they're watching the latest episode of the TV series FBI. <laughs> yeah. It, which was a real TV series called The FBI that ran from 1965 to 1974. It was like they, they showed uh, the stories of real-life FBI cases. I actually looked into this. The FBI apparently had actual veto power over who they could cast as guest stars week to week. That's awesome. That is kind of crazy. Uh, anyway, um, the episode that they're sitting down to watch, Rick is actually in. He <laughs> of is, he is. You know, he's the guest star as the villain, as what that's what his career has turned into, the mm-hmm. guest starring villain on, all, on a bunch of TV series. And it's like they're kind of doing commentary on the episode. And, you know, it's like because you mostly just see the episode of the TV show itself on a little TV screen and you hear their voices talking about it as professionals and as friends, you know, because like these shows, like it's ultimately it starts out like Rick and some other guy are robbing some stuff off an army truck, an army supply truck. And it shows like the two vehicles driving down a highway and Brad Pitt's character is like, Oh, where'd you film that? Is that on this highway? Yeah. It's out by this town or wherever. I don't really remember, you know? And, uh, and they runs this truck off the road, and Rick's in the back of this truck, and he jumps out with a shotgun and shoots a guy. And Chris's like, oh, man, that's good. I mean, that's, you know, and then uh, he jumps out of the truck, and Cliff comments about how, oh, that's a good jump. That's a good move. That's a good jump off, off the tailgate, you know. And, uh, like, and then Rick is commenting after he kills like, the two soldiers driving the truck. He walks by one of the dead bodies, and he's like, that guy is a super dick. I mean... <laughs> And then he walks by the other guy that he's shot in this scene, and he's like, oh, that's so-and-so, real professional, sweet guy, you know. And kind of talking about the making of the scene, and then they kind of, Rick kind of primes him, oh, here comes, you know, here comes, like, the, my, my, my turn, my big, my big moment where he turns and faces the camera, and it freeze frames on him, and it gives, like, his character name, the FBI case file number, and they're both kind of laughing at it because it's a little cheesy. But it's just really... Um, it's really funny, but it's also really charming, and it really shows solidifies these guys as not only being really old friends, but being old guard professionals, you know, in this industry that is changing underneath their feet, right? You know, and uh, you know, but they're but they're not only they're good friends, they're also colleagues, and that interaction is what I was the most interested in in this movie. I mm-hmm. found myself, and I wish there was kind of more of it. So uh, anyway, that's my first. And probably my most favorite part of the movie, really. Yeah. As weird as it seems. Because you don't even see their faces during it. It's just them it's talking. talking. It's like you see the, the TV screen showing the beginning of this FBI episode. You hear their voices talking about it. Right. Hmm. Okay. Um, so my second favorite thing is a little small. But I appreciated it just upon reflection and Uh i'll be honest i had a hard time coming up with three things two of them i came up with Mm -hmm. very quickly the first one that i talked about about their friendship and then the the third one that i'm going to talk about yeah but i had a hard time coming up with three i had a ton of honorable mentions i get that yeah right with this movie i understand that. but i didn't really think i had three things that stood out until I just kind of thought about it a lot more and then, of course, started doing my research about the movie. Um, 
And one of the things that I really ended up liking was the scene where Sharon Tate goes and watches her show in the theater. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, Margot Robbie is um, there and she goes and she walks by her movie. You know, it's on the marquee. Yep. um, And she's smiling and she is... Um, you know, just kind of giddy that she's she's in a movie. She's she's there. Her, you know, she's she's like third, second or third billing. You know, right. And so then she goes up and she goes, "Can I can I go in?" And they say, you know, the person's like, "Ah, it's seventy five cents." And I had <laughs> right. to pause for a moment and right. be like, "You could see a movie each, for seventy five cents." We each paid six dollars for this movie, and I thought that was a screaming deal. It was a screaming deal. <laughs> um, but then, uh, so she gets in, she sits down. She it's the it's the the um, the Great Escape. Um, oh, no. and uh, no, the Wrecking Crew. Yes. Yes. Yeah, sorry, the Wrecking Crew, and um, she is sitting in the theater. And she's watching it. And I love that they used the actual footage of the movie. They didn't, like, cut Margot Robbie right. into it. Which is what they do with Leonardo DiCaprio and a bunch of stuff. Right. But, yeah. Um, and she's listening to the crowd around her. With, like, her first scene where she comes out. And people are laughing. And, and, she's, and you can just see the smile on her face grow. Right. Yeah. As she's sitting there listening to people enjoy her performance enjoy her character laugh when they're supposed to laugh and i just i felt it was a pretty touching moment Mm -hmm. because in this day and age of twitter and um instant feedback most of which tends to be disgruntled people you know um how gratifying would it could it be as an actor to go and sit in a movie theater and listen to people watch your movie and enjoy your right. You know, enjoy your work. Mm-hmm. Um, versus, you know, I just think about how many movies in the recent past, well, any past, where the movie has come back out and immediately all the disgruntled fans are on Twitter, like yeah. def- defaming it, and how you know people have gone on Rotten Tomatoes. Before a movie has even been released, right. to trash it, to try to submarine its right audience rating or whatever, for, yeah, for no good reason. Like I just, so I'm so baffled by those guys. Like if you don't like a movie, that's that's fine. Mm-hmm. Move on and go see something else because it's not like there's a limited supply of TV or movies out there for you to enjoy or books or graphic novels or comics or any of those things. Um, So I don't always understand why people feel the need to sit and um, tell other people that things they might enjoy are trash. Yeah. You know, like I, there are movies we don't like and we talk about it, but that's our opinion and we're okay with that. Yeah. You know, I'm also not, we're not adding those actors on Twitter Right. And telling them to go kill themselves or whatever. Exactly. So, so I, um, but I just, it's such a sweet moment. Yeah. And it it's, um, right. it's just kind of, it, Margot Robbie does a great job of just portraying just joy at being, at having your work appreciated 
mm-hmm. without you standing up there and being like, this is my work, guys. Did you appreciate it? Tell me how much you appreciate it. Like right. she's sitting in a dark movie theater and it's it's unrequested um, feedback and it's really positive and it's really great to watch her as Sharon Tate um, be so excited right. to see how happy people are watching the show. So yeah. it's just, it's a sweet moment. Um, Quentin Tarantino doesn't then do something. There's no shocking violence to ruin the moment for us as he does in a lot of his movies. Yeah. It's just a sweet moment. Mm. And I like that. Yeah, I like that too. I like that moment too. All right, for my second thing. Uh, so in the very beginning, the opening of this movie, uh, Rick Dalton meets with a, a movie producer, Marvin <laughs> Schwarz. Schwarz, that's right. Played by Al Pacino. And it's interesting as this this whole sequence is essentially a big block of exposition. But you don't really care. Uh-huh. As it's delivered in a very uh, fun way. You know, you get everything you need going forward for the two main characters, right? You see you see uh, footage from Rick Dalton and his old black and white Western TV show, Bounty Law. Right. right? Where, uh, where that, the, the show that made him like a name to, to whatever degree he's a name or a star. Um, also, you get to see um, him in a couple of the movies that he got to make, you know, since that TV show. Um, one of those movies uh, essentially being a wink and a nod to one of Tarantino's previous films, you know, Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. Which, which I think... I find a little interesting. And then Pacino lays out really what you need to know about Rick. You know, he asks him, you know, so what, you know, uh, uh, what have you been doing lately? We've been acting in. And tells him about the TV shows he's guest starring on. And he's like, and he mentions like the, mo- the most recent one he's going to be on. He plays, as he says, the heavy. Mm-hmm. He's like, and, uh, and all these other shows, are you the bad guy? And he's like, well, yeah. And do those shows end in a, f- end in a fight that you lose? Well, Yeah. You know, I'm I'm bad guy. You know, and he kind of explains. Well, sure. You know, like he he's like it's he feels bad for Rick. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he's trying to talk him into doing something else. Right. But he explains. You know, this is this is like uh, this is kind of part of the game. You know, you're not you don't have your own show anymore, but you're a name that people still remember. These new new shows with up and coming you know leading men are gonna get you on their show to have their new hero actor best you you know to help elevate their new their Mm -hmm. new guy and that's what they're using you for right you know and if and essentially like and that and that and that the sequence you know just sets the groundwork for everything you need to know about uh rick dalton going forward what he's dealing with and Mm -hmm. that conversation clearly uh haunts him for the rest of the movie right you know, and, uh, and you know, and it's Al Pacino doing some playing a character, he, you know, where he's not shouting, you know, <laughs> Wah, ha, you know, he's making weird noises. Anybody. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it's a I think it's a really kind of delightful scene that explains a lot uh, that you need to know, but does it in a real fun way. Mm-hmm. So I, I really like that, how they open the movie that way. Yeah. Um, it took me a little while to realize exactly how Tarantino was splicing these fictional characters in with real ones. Right. Um, Again, had I spent any time doing research on the movie before I went, 
I would have known that. Mm-hmm. But instead, I did not. <laughs> but at the same time, it really made me think like, huh, that really was a trait of some of those old series, which I would think, which I would argue lasted well beyond the old Westerns. You know, there were many, you know, if you kind of go back even into the 70s and 80s series, you start to see some of the older generation showing up to kind of lend street cred to the to the younger right. up and coming stars. So it was very interesting with that sequence, I agree. Right. Um, well, that sort of leads me to my third one. My third thing that I liked about this movie, and this came to me very quickly, um, which is why I'm saving it for last, because it was probably one of my favorite things. And that is the um, interaction between Rick Dalton and Trudy, the oh, young okay. actress, Trudy Frazier. Yeah. So Rick is on um, on a show. Once again, he's the heavy. Yeah. He's the villain. Um, playing against a young 32-year-old James Stacy, played by Timothy Oliphant. Mm-hmm. Do you know how, t- how old Timothy Oliphant is? Older than that. He's 50. Man. I, that guy. I, just, I kind of stopped breathing there for a moment. Um, so 50-year-old Timothy Oliphant yeah. is playing 32-year-old right. James Stacy um, in this movie. And, of course, he's the hero. Right. And um, so, in this in this sequence, um, Rick it it's lunchtime and he's out. He's all in costume and he's wandering around with his book, and he sees young Trudy Frazier, mm-hmm. um, actress, sitting in her chair, boots up, reading a book, and he kind of causes you know pauses and asks to sit next to her, and the the next scene is adorable right it's him talking to this child you Mm -hmm. know and and learning from her you know which because he initially is kind of like oh what are you doing there little girl and she is talking about how she's seriously preparing for her role and that she stays in character during you know while she's on set she doesn't want Rick to refer to her as her real name, but right. her stage name, mm-hmm. like her her character's Character. name. Um, and then they're talking about the books they're reading, you know, and she asks amazing questions, you know, about like, so what's it about? And he's like, well, I haven't gotten to the end yet. She's like, well, that's not what I asked you. Right. What's it about? And so he's really forced to be introspective and thoughtful about what the book is about and where he's at in the book. Because she asks him that too. Like, what's happening now? Right. And he gives a glib answer. Well, I haven't finished it. And she's like, again, I'm not asking that. Like, what's happening now? And he begins to look at this dime store novel, really, mm-hmm. in a much deeper light and connect to that reading, that book that he's been reading, in a very different way. And it's a very, it's great to watch because um, it reinforces the idea that, you know, like anything that you're reading can have meaning, you mm-hmm. know, how are you connecting with your story that you're reading or watching or listening to? Um, and then he comes back 
and he's a better actor because of her. Mm-hmm. You know, like he he starts really thinking about the story. He starts thinking about its connection to him, what his personal uh, personal connection to the movie or to the book he's reading is, which gives him a personal connection then to his character. And the, I mean, it's he's not reading the script. It's like his character then that he develops a newfound relationship with. Right. Um, and so it's just this great moment where you see. Um, kind of a one-note actor, you know, who's had his role, mm-hmm. um, learning more about what he's capable of as an actor and really as a person mm-hmm. because of his interactions with this little girl. Um, and so he does this amazing scene, you know, as the villain. So he's really elevating this idea beyond just the heavy He's providing a nuanced performance and he throws the little girl to the ground. Yeah. And then they yell cut and he immediately like leaps to the ground to make sure like, oh, are you okay? Are you okay? Mm-hmm. You know, and the little girl's all excited and jumps up and she's like, yep, I'm totally ready. I've got pads on my arms. Like, you know, being the professional actress that she is. Yeah. And I just, I just really liked that scene because I think it's a moment of, of development for Mm -hmm. rick dalton yeah you know where he he taps into some un previously unknown talent that he has right because of this little girl you know and then i love this scene even more because you know after the movie i go and start reading about it behind the scenes and uh, apparently leonardo dicaprio built up a really positive relationship with this little girl um, Julia Butters mm-hmm. to the point where they're on set and while they're filming their scenes, some of the other actors and crew members were swearing and uh-huh. dropping F bombs and all, all these things. And he, he actually went to them and talked to all of these actors and stunt and stuntmen and stage right. crew and, and got them all to agree not to swear while Julia was on the set and went and talked to Julia and her mom um, and was like, it's okay. They're not going to right. swear, you know, because Julia's ten yeah. <laughs> in real life, and so it's even like it's cuter because, not, or to me, it's really great because like there's this great moment on the screen that you're watching, and then to know that that kind of bled over into real life, where yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio, this you know Academy Award winner, is like super self-conscious about this little 10-year-old girl's feelings and wants to make sure that she has a positive experience on set and isn't uh-huh. exposed to a bunch of old men swearing around her. Right. Um, just kind of made me like be like, aw, look, life imitating art. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So uh, I just really liked... I liked that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked... I liked what the deeper implications that it had for Rick Dalton as yeah. an actor. And then I loved the additional learning about um, Leo and 10-year-old Julia yeah. Butters. Okay. Yeah. Um, my third thing is actually similar. It's that, it's that uh, his time on that set during the movie mm-hmm. is also my third thing, but, but for different reasons. reasons. It's not okay. necessarily having to deal with his interaction with that actress. Um, and also, I'm going to... Maybe disagree with you slightly, at least my interpretation of it. Okay. All right. I don't know that his um, performance that day on the set is 
because he's discovered something because of her. Mm-hmm. I almost wonder if it's maybe it was all it's just something I mean, maybe rediscovered. Like oh. I, I want to believe that's always been in him. Okay. You know, and he's just he's just like capturing that little bit of what of the talent he has, you know, mm-hmm. this this one day. Um, you know, I like that the when he's talking to her about the book, you know, he real he's like realizing because the, the book is essentially when he's describing the book to her, it's essentially him, right? Right, and he probably didn't. Uh, he pro- uh, he's been reading this book. He's halfway through this this old dime store western without realizing that he's reading it probably because it's him. Like right. subconsciously, this is me, and I'm just now figuring that out. Right. You know, because this ten year old is more mature than I am. A cent, you know, right. it's Quentin Tarantino's version of Liana Mormont from yeah. Game of Thrones. Yes. But my really favorite parts is um, so when they get to filming, and it shows him filming, uh, doing a scene opposite Timothy Oliphant, and he is killing it. He is great. You know, it's a little gross because he's eating a piece of chicken as he's doing it. I don't care for that. Right. But he's still just <laughs> chewing the scenery. <laughs> chewing the scenery as this guy that's the villain. He also still has a history with Oliphant's character, and they go into the bar. And they have this, they're having this great, you know, old school Western dialogue. And mm-hmm. he's, and it's, he, and it's kind of lends us this hope. It's like, man, he's this old dog has some shit to show these young guys. You know, I like it until they get to a part where he's like, lying. Yeah. Like, you know, all of a sudden he can't remember what to say next. And he has a little bit of a blow up on scene. And I don't know if they break for lunch or they just take a break. And all of a sudden, there's this scene where he's just alone in his trailer and just losing his mind. He mm-hmm. has a bit of a, uh, what I have written down here, um, breakdown slash freak out, mm-hmm. uh, where he vacillates back and forth from trying to talk himself up into going back there and, damn it, be the star Rick Dalton that he thinks he can still be, to, you know, braiding himself and threatening his reflection in the mirror with suicide. I know. I mean, it, a scene that apparently was a lot degree improvised. Yeah. It is wild, you know. And then ultimately going back to the scene you mentioned uh, where he is holding that little girl hostage, you know, ending with him throwing her to the floor, which you find out later was his suggestion to the director. Right. You know, and that a great scene, you know, that he does and he kills it. And gets a compliment from the little girl that, you know, that, you know, brings him to tears that he Mm -hmm. got that and that he was able to do that. So I love that, you know, I know just and plus it's weird because you're bouncing in and out of that scene because you got to go because they they leave him and they go see what uh, Brad Pitt's up to a couple of different times, I think. Right. And then come back. So it's broken up. But that whole time on set is super interesting. Mm hmm. You know, and so, yeah, I really liked all of that. And who is playing the director? Oh, uh, I thought it, Bruce, it's not Bruce. I thought it was Bruce Dern because I knew Bruce Dern was in this movie, but I don't think, but he plays the old owner of the yes. ranch. Um, sta- the stall ranch. Stall- the owner of the stall yeah. ranch. Um, yeah, but he, that guy's, well, his hair is insane. Incredible. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, of course it's somebody that I was like, I know him. A, and then yes, I, of course, cannot think of him for the life of my name. But he even does this whole, like, he gives 
Rick Dalton tons of praise. Yes. At the conclusion of the scene. Oh, that was brilliant. Magnifique. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and Rick Dalton, you know, is super like eating up and he's like, oh, that's great. Thanks. Thanks. I'm so glad. But it's not until the little girl comes up and is like, that was the best performance I've ever seen. You know, just like yeah. in the trailer. And that he really like, gets, you know, emotional and starts to cry. Like, for whatever reason, the praise of this child is what is what he needed. Mm-hmm. You know? So, it's very... It is very cool. Yeah. I also, um, so one of my honorable mentions is mm-hmm. the trailer scene in, in the, where he's in his, where Rick Dalton is in his trailer after forgetting the lines when they take a break. Yeah. And he's like just having his meltdown where he's yelling at himself, you know, in the, um, into the mirror, like, I will go home and I will kill you, you know, like talking to himself. Uh-huh. And then there's a moment where he's like, I'm never drinking again. I'm yeah. swearing it all off. Yeah. And then he turns and um, takes a drink out of his flask and then realizes he's taking a drink out of his flask and like throws it out the door. And, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, that was apparently all Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, yeah. that was unscripted, an unscripted rant. So they were like, just let go. Um, especially since apparently um, Leo was having a hard time uh, acting that that whole scene. Like he was having a hard time acting it like Rick Dalton would act it. Okay. He wanted to act it like he would act it. Right. And so it was already a frustrating experience um, until um, Tarantino said like, well, let's pretend that you forget your lines. Like Rick Dalton forgets his lines, mm. you know. And then what happens? And and it created a moment of, of of great of a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, uh, you mentioned an honorable mention. I'll mention one of mine. Okay. Uh, so Tarantino's known for his soundtracks, the music <sighs> yeah. he includes, and this is a good one. It is. Uh, a bunch of songs that I know I've heard before, but I can't think of the names. Uh, but the ones that I do remember, you know, Mrs. Robinson. Uh, right. California Dream, and of course, would be in this movie. And uh, Hush by Deep Purple. There's a, a scene where Sharon Tate and her then husband uh, and future scumbag Roman Polanski. Uh, get, Let's be clear, he was always a scumbag. He was probably he always, yeah, unknown scumbag at the time. Right. You know, future known to the world scumbag. Get in a car. He's uh, where he's, the, the, no, the one time where he is like, where I told you, is like, remember that this scene happened? And I was like, why did they dress him exactly like Austin Powers? Because he is wearing exactly what Austin Powers wears in the first Austin Powers movie. But right. anyway, they get in a, like an old Rolls Royce and they drive to the Playboy Mansion. And while they're driving to the Playboy Mansion, thundering in the speakers is Hush by Deep Purple. And I fucking love that song. <laughs> I mean, when people think of Deep Purple, most people think of Smoke on the Water, right. A Fire in the Sky. And I get it. I understand why. But for my money, Hush is just... The, killer song Mm -hmm. so that was awesome that it was that it was in this movie yeah the soundtrack is fantastic i mean you've got the mamas and the papas you got the buchanan brothers you got paul revere and the raiders Mm -hmm. you've got deep purple you've got aretha franklin you've got neil diamond i mean it's just it is really 
a collection of amazing 1960s um, groups yeah. and, and singers. So, yeah. It's really good. Yeah. Um, okay. So, I have a couple of other uh, um, honorable mentions. Same. Uh, so, um, I, I already kind of mentioned this in my mention about like Sharon, Margot Robbie going to the theater and watching herself, watching, you know, as Sharon Tate watching herself in the movie. Yeah. Margot Robbie did a great job as Sharon Tate. I was initially a little put off because I was like, oh, here's Margot Robbie playing an airhead blonde, you know, portraying Sharon Tate as kind of an airheaded blonde. Uh-huh. And... Really, I mean, she has to work pretty hard because she doesn't have a lot of lines. Right. But she has a lot of scenes. So there's a lot of... Oppor- you, you see her. Yeah. Right. Well, you see her, but she's she's dancing, she's doing stuff, she's, you know, there's all these things that are happening, but she's not talking to other people necessarily. Um, and so, I mean, I think Margot Robbie isn't actually, is a very talented actress. I don't think... I think that kind of she's going through the typecast role where she can only be seen as a sex symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, but I liked that there are moments in this movie where she's really per- portraying a level of innocence and not naivety. No. But innocence. Right. That um, is, is hard to pull off, especially in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Um, so I liked Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate. That was one of my, my honorable mentions. Okay. I was just going to say like the overall supporting cast. Yeah. Uh, Tarantino, as he's become more, you know, the, the famous person that he is, has been able to really, um, litter his movies with a lot of familiar faces. Mm -hmm. And this movie is no different. You know, I already mentioned Al Pacino. Uh, there's Lena Dunham, uh, Damian Lewis. Luke Perry in his, one of his final roles. I know. Uh, Dakota Pan- Fanning as the infamous Squeaky Frome. Uh, I just saw the movie The Burbs pretty recently. So seeing mm-hmm. Bruce Dern in this was really great, considering I had just seen that. And then you mentioned Timothy Oliphant, uh, right. who we really loved as we just recently went through all of the, the series The Santa Clarita Diet. Right. In which he's really great. Uh, he was also the star of the TV series Justified, which was mm-hmm. one of my favorite one of my favorite TV shows. And just, it was really cool to see him in this because, I mean, well, first of all, 50 years old and he looks like that, that, that son of a bitch. Um, and <laughs> he just has this effortless cool about him, mm-hmm. you know, and just this, this cool at ease. And so, yeah, I think he was perfectly cast as the, the new up and coming Western TV star. Right. You know, and I'm sure the TV show Justified, which is essentially a modern day Western, mm-hmm. had nothing to do with that. But yeah, like all, and I didn't even mention, you know, Kevin Smith's daughter, we realized was in this. I don't think right. she says a word, but she's in it. So is um, Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke's daughter, Maya well, Hawke. Maya Hawke from Stranger Things season three. Mm-hmm. She was, yep. Uh, yeah. And uh, other faces I'm sure I'm forgetting. Um, but yeah, and I think I was looking, trying to look this up. We mentioned the director of that uh, episode of Lancer. Mm-hmm. That Leo DiCaprio plays the villain in, I'm pretty sure I have this right. Is played by a guy named Nicholas Hammond, who was Spider-Man in the '70s Spider-Man TV series. Whoa, I'm that's that's pretty sure I'm right about that. I do love that they reference um, 
Batman and Robin. Yeah. That was out at the time with Adam West multiple times in this movie. And it's then, pretty funny. And then played the song during the credits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Another honorable mention that I have is um, there's a... So there's kind of this teaser scene where um, Cliff, is, as he's driving, he keeps running into this young girl who's the flirting with him kind of young you know hippie. young hippie her right. name's pussycat right right um and they he finally she's been hitchhiking and he finally picks her up and um they're driving he's driving her out to the spa spawn spain spa spa yeah. Yeah. i don't know ranch clearly i am not um a huge follower of Spawn. Spawn is what it is. Of the Manson family, and I don't know a lot about them. But um, but they're driving out there, and you're kind of watching it, and you're just, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm watching this kind of waiting for what's the plot twist? What's the craziness that's about to happen? What's, you know, because right. they're just having these conversations between this older guy who's at the end of his stunt double career mm-hmm. and this young girl, you know, young hippie. And uh, then out of nowhere, she's like asking if she wants to, if he, she, he wants her to give him a blowjob while he's driving. Right. Right. And I think maybe I just don't have, maybe this says about me and my estimation of Quentin Tarantino and his writing. Right. But it seems to me that that's the point in time where they'd be like, sure. But instead you have this whole scenario where Cliff, played by Brad Pitt, kind of, is like questioning her about her age and he's talking to her and he just really is like, he's pretty upfront. He's like, you are not 18. Right. And I am not going to cross that line with you. I'm not going to jail for you. Like for this of all things. And I just, I appreciated that moment because I think, you know, we're right in the middle of, you know, Epstein's, you know, crazy. Jeff, yeah, Jeffrey Epstein, mo- you know, real life monster, real life horrible person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's refreshing to see a scenario, especially in a Tarantino movie, which is sometimes overly sex and sexed and overly violent and overly sure. where you have somebody just making the right decision there, mm-hmm. um, and not even the right decision, but just the good decision. And it feels authentic to Cliff, where he's right. like. You are not, I am not doing this with you because there's no way that this would be yeah. the right thing yeah, and right. legal or any wise. And I just, it was just a moment where I kind of was like, yes! Right. <laughs> In the theater. Well, you call it the good decision. I would say, how about we call it the correct decision? Because mm-hmm. I get the feeling that if she was able to prove that she was 18 years and one hour old, he would have been fine with it. <laughs> And that's still a little gross. It is. If yes, I'm honest. Yes. So, yeah. That's true. Especially after, because Tarantino does make sure that her ass is right in front of the camera as she's bending over. Oh, my gosh. Into I the saw window. That. With the Daisy Duke yep. shorts and everything. Yeah. Oh. So. We'll get to the things I didn't like. Right. <laughs> okay. So, uh, really quickly, my last, well, I'll say last about honorable mentions. Uh, the scene you mentioned where Sharon Tate's in the theater watching her own movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, without saying a word, uh, it's Margot Robbie is giving, it's just showing just this effortless amount of charm. Right. Um, 
And I did also really like that they used the actual um, footage of Sharon Tate in that movie. Mm-hmm. Because at the time, I didn't know. Because you'd already seen how they had digitally put uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in a bunch of old... in a, in, uh, in some old movies and old TV shows. Mm-hmm. So I was like, did they do that with her? Or is that actually Sharon Tate? I'm not sure. I couldn't tell. Right. So I'm glad after the fact, I was glad to see that they just played the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, the last thing I'll say is just how it looks... You know, it's a, that's a, I wasn't alive during that time. Uh, I've certainly never, haven't spent a ton of time in Hollywood. Uh, but just the sunny days and neon nights of this late 60s mm-hmm. Hollywood, whether that was how it really was or not on the screen, it looks really cool. Right. So. I agree. That 35 millimeter camera that he insists yeah. on filming on. Yeah. Um, I have uh, two more honorable mentions that I'll go through really quick. One is really small. So uh, Brad Pitt is uh, 56. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a moment where he's on the roof and he takes off his shirt to yep. work on the antenna. Yep. And he's like totally ripped. Yep. Uh, apparently, the uh, the whole crew that was on set applauded for him for that because, damn, he well, looked good. Well, I told you... Uh, uh, earlier, like according to IMDb, th- this movie premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, and when that happened, the audience there was a, there was some like oohs and ahs and applause from the audience. Right. When that happened, and you know, you know, I get it, but <laughs> but at the same time, you got to realize Brad Pitt, uh, you know, it's his job, right? He can pay a nutritionist to make him the meals mm. that he needs, and how many other personal trainers he has to work him out. Right. And whatever. I don't know. know. You don't see a lot of close to 60-year-old actors, though, pulling off their shirts. Tom Cruise does it all the time. Tom Cruise is the exception to to that rule, okay? Because it's Tom Cruise, and he seems to be insist on not looking a day over a 39. Um, Well, that... Okay, but anyway, (laughs) I just have to say that was a moment where I was like, Damn, Brad Pitt. Yeah. Looking good. Um, so that was one. Okay. The, the... <laughs> Sorry. Just had to laugh at the look uh-huh. on your face. Uh, the second moment um, that I have to throw out there um, is, and I'm sorry, I lost my spot in my notes because you distracted me with your, but, 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 Brad Pitt. Um, probably probably take steroids too. Oh my goodness! Seriously, it is the moment. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> where... it's, not like, it's not like they drug test for that. Okay. Anyway, are we gonna get back yes, to my other are. honorable mention? Yep. Okay. Uh, it's the moment where uh, Timothy Oliphant asks Rick Dalton, Leo oh, DiCaprio. Oh yeah, this was cool too. I like this. Yeah. Like I heard that you were supposed to be in The Great Escape. Right. You know, instead of Steve McQueen. Mm -hmm. And as Leo is telling the story of like, well, no, no, no. I mean, I wasn't. It just briefly considered. It flashes to scenes with him spliced into that, like him as Steve McQueen's character in The Great Escape. Right. Reciting those lines. Mm -hmm. And I giggled uncontrollably during that because in my mind, what I perceived happening right. was he was telling the story like 
I totally had this movie and then they reshot it with Steve McQueen instead of it being him just imagining himself in that role. Right. Um, but I just really thought like it was him being like, I was in this movie first and then they reshot it with Steve McQueen. So right. here's my take on everything. Right. Um, but it just, and then I, when I read about it, it was like supposed to be him imagining himself in those roles. I thought it was funny because both work equally well. I was going to say the exact same thing. Because that, when that happened, I was like, so which is this supposed to be? Right. Is he imagining himself and what he would have done in that role? Or is this supposed to mean, or is he lying right now? Right. And he was actually on set and they recast him. Right. You know, I'm unsure as what how I'm supposed to take this. And I definitely thought it was he had the role and they recast Steve McQueen yeah. in it later. And so I I just giggled through that whole scene. It's great. It's brilliant because both concepts work, work yeah. really well. And they both make it just as funny. Yeah. Okay. So are we done with the honorable mentions then? I think so. Okay. Uh, well, dislikes then. Oh, man. So I'll go first since okay. we just talked about Brad Pitt and his body. <laughs> so this dislike goes all the way back to the first time I saw the trailer, right? And you see that Leonardo DiCaprio is the star actor and Brad Pitt is his stunt double. And I was like, horseshit. Who's going to buy that? It's Brad Pitt. <laughs> Brad Pitt is too handsome a man on this planet to be anybody's stunt double even leonardo dicaprio i don't care how handsome you think leonardo dicaprio is i don't care how many supermodels leonardo dicaprio has landed in his life he is not brad pitt i have i have a hard time accepting that a guy that looks like that spent his career as a stunt double living in a shitty trailer off the beaten path of nowhere hollywood california and at no point no director looked at this stunningly handsome, chiseled, tanned man and went, maybe we should, have you ever wanted to be in front of the camera? Do you want some lines? How about we try giving you some lines? Because quite frankly, you look better than this guy. I can't, it just was tough swallow. Um, oh, really? They do, they do try to like, a, so they do, a, as they say, hang a lantern on it. There's the scene where he's like talking with Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee even says, you're really pretty for a stuntman, mm-hmm. you know. And I even think, uh, and this leads to another really, one of my big dislikes. I also think they try to explain it away with the side story about maybe he murdered his wife. And maybe that's why he's only a stuntman, right? But then that also brings up the whole thing about maybe he murdered his wife. Because that is played like a joke. And that is not funny. Right. They even flash back to him because like, oh, like he pushed her off a boat. And they actually have a flashback to him on a boat with his wife berating him and nagging him. Right. And with him having like a spear gun, you know, kind of pointing it at her. And you're like, is this supposed to be funny? You know, she's mean to him. So I guess she had it coming. What is this? Is that what this is? Because right. f- fuck that. I yeah. didn't. I did not like that at all. I'm glad you said that because I also was like, "Oh, okay." Um, that was. I did not like that at all. Murdering your wife is apparently a gag joke. Got yeah. it. That's you know, that's totally how it came across. Yeah. Um. See, and for me, the okay, getting back to the the initial dislike, which was, um, buying is, Brad. Could Pitt. Brad Pitt be a stunt double for Leo? Right. 
I guess I looked at it and the way they really did the makeup being and hairstyle, when I think there was about that, 60s, like the 60s profile mm-hmm. of the actor, yeah, I think Leo captured it better than Brad Pitt. You know, mm-hmm. like, I, so that's why I think it worked. You know, but I do think that there was a little tongue in cheek there with by Quentin Tarantino being like, "Uh uh-huh, that guy is the stunt double, you know, type of thing. Mm -hmm. Wink, wink. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, anyway, I am glad that you talked about, uh, the murdering of the wife not being a funny gag because that is on my list. Um, also on my list, kind of the big thing is, um, I, I did not like his portrayal of Bruce Lee. Yeah, that's Neither another one. Neither did Bruce Lee's daughter. Nope. Um, but I just feel like Bruce Lee was, is, he may have been arrogant. Like, they portray him as just this kind of, like, arrogant, braggart, yeah. overstating his skill, mm-hmm. you know, as he's bragging to everybody there. Right. And I just kind of am like, that is unfair to the legacy of Bruce Lee. Right. Bruce Lee became an Asian superstar in America in a time when he was bad when they were battling like rampant stereotypes yeah and rampant um, racism mm-hmm. in 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 Hollywood and casting and stereotypes of casting you know right. this is about the same time when we have um, uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, right? With one of the, probably one of the most offensive caricatures of an Asian American man, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I, I just was like, what? I get that I understand, like, there's a part of me that can get that what he was trying to go for was like, but Cliff could beat him, you know? At the same time, the way that he carries out that scene and the way that he implies Bruce Lee behaved is, A, not consistent with way, the way other people talked about Bruce Lee. Yeah. You know? Um, and B, just, I mean, it's just incredibly uh, offensive. Um, which leads me to like my overall dislike of this movie. And this is an issue that I see as underlying tones in several of Quentin Tarantino's movies. It's just this, this underlying racism tone that Quentin Tarantino thinks he seems to think he can get away with. Mm -hmm. I don't know because he's friends with Samuel L. Jackson. So that gives him a pass. Um, or does he think it gives him a pass, but just, I don't know. Like I just was deeply unhappy with the way he played out Bruce Lee's character right to make a point and I don't even know what point it was what that Cliff could kick his ass that I guess. Cliff was a better fighter I like I it didn't even have like I didn't even understand the point of of the way he he chose to portray Bruce Lee and I I really didn't like it yeah. And I was still reeling from the earlier comment 
where um, from at near the start of the movie where Rick Dalton is crying because he's just had that scene with Al Pacino and he's realizing he's the heavy and he's, right. you know, and, um, and Brad Pitt casually looks at him. Cliff casually looks at him and is like, don't cry in front of the Mexicans. And it's just this throwaway line. Right. And you're just left there. And then not long after that, you get this about Bruce Lee and it just, it felt gross mm-hmm. and I didn't like it. Yeah. And I realized that in most of Bruce Lee's or Quentin Tarantino's movies, there's there's some element of that that occurs in his movies. And I'm always like, does this say, is this supposed to say something about who you are as, as a person, Quentin? Right. Like, what's up with that? Yeah, I I understand. Yeah, I get all of that. I also didn't like that scene, which is unfortunate because the scenes, the actor who plays Bruce Lee, he does a great impersonation mm-hmm. like the when he's speaking he is cadence of like how bruce spoke is really spot on you know like i'm not like i don't of course we didn't know bruce lee you know but i've seen uh i've seen a few documentaries and i've read some things and i know i just have a heart just uh you know that whole scene starts even though he's giving this like perfect like the dictation of how he speaks is bruce lee but what he's saying doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. I don't. I have trouble believing that Bruce Lee would be, you know, well, not lacking for confidence, but that kind of this arrogant douchiness. Right. Like he's just talking about how good he is to a bunch of strangers. Right. You know, referring as instigating a fight on his own. Right. It was his idea that they fight, and right. I don't. That I feel that those goes against what Bruce Lee would would teach. Right. You know, that whole you now self-defense is self-defense, right. right? Not. And he was a fan of uh, Cassius Clay. You know, yeah. like they ask him, like, who would win in a fight? You know, and and I like all all kind of, you know, reports say that he was actually a fan. Well, sure. So for him to be like, well, of course he would die, you know, type of thing, like just also seemed very antithetical. Yeah. So I just, yeah, I just. That scene made me feel icky, and yeah. it stayed with me. And the idea that some out-of-practice, close-to-wash-up stuntman would uh, ha- would draw Bruce Lee in any kind of fight is nonsense. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> if they would have fought in for real, Bruce, mm-hmm. you know, gracefully, you know, doesn't murder him. Right. right? Although I do like the whole thing about, you know, my hands are registered weapons. If I accidentally kill someone, I go to jail. You know, right. it, yeah. Anybody who accidentally kills somebody, they go to jail. It's called yeah. man. That's a, that's a fun. That's a good line. That is a good line. But, but this, but this is, and I'll speak to this a little later. This goes to my kind of ultimate. I think I dislike the marriage of fi- these fictional characters with real life people. Oh really? Yeah. I kind of liked it. Um. So you mentioned um. So Margot Robbie, mm-hmm. you know, she gets to look pretty and right. go to parties. And, you know, when she gets to talk to people, she's very charming. Right. And that's it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And that's, I like, I is ultimately after we saw this movie, I really didn't know how I felt. And I typically don't go looking to read reviews, but I did for this. I felt like, like I want to see what other people are saying. And I read a bunch of 
you know, reviews, both pro and con. But ultimately, I saw this repeated a lot. That um, one of the big criticisms of this is that um, you know uh, Leo and Brad get to be these full, complicated characters. Right. You know, and she doesn't. And she, you know, and she's yeah, she's like a, this, this almost this just this image of Hollywood royalty that kind of goes across every once in a while mm-hmm. and that's it and like all the women in this movie are very right. one note they're superficial characters yes um the so yeah it's a bummer wife of the, nagging, the nagging wife of kurt russell mm-hmm. right the, the nagging wife of bruce pitt you know the the psycho women of the manson ranch right uh, and then and yeah and then ultimately uh margot Rob- and that's a that's a big name to cast portraying one of the most, in, you know, one of the more famous names of Hollywood history. Right. And you ultimately didn't give her a whole lot to do. Mm-hmm. You know, so, no. I didn't, I was, I was a little, you know, bummed out by that, I guess. Well, but. I also was like, with the exception of, um, what, uh, Jackie Brown? Yeah. How often, like, it, or and Kill, and Kill Bill, Bill, of course. Right? Most of his movies, the women don't have a shit ton to do yeah right i mean he's had nine and how many of them right (laughs) have complex female leads uh so uh yeah it's it was an interesting piece i was i did see that as well um i i think and because i think margot robbie is a better actress um Mm -hmm. i felt she was underutilized oh for sure i mean that scene was great and i Mm -hmm. liked that scene but i felt as an actress and as who Sharon Tate was. Right. It was a little flat. Yeah. Two-dimensional. Mm-hmm. So. Um, other things I didn't like. Well, so I don't ever know how I feel about Quentin Tarantino in general. Yeah. Like, do I like his movies? Do I not like his movies? Are they too violent? Are they... Um, are there shocking moments of violent in an otherwise somewhat compelling storyline that you're just kind of following? Right. Um, you know, like I just, I just never really know how I feel about Quentin Tarantino. Like mm-hmm. he kind of gives me the creeps type of thing. Yeah. And so I just, and yet he also. Like when the Weinstein company was going through the scandal about Harvey Weinstein, like he cut ties. It wasn't like, you know, like, so he's, he also makes some of these other decisions. I don't, I just don't know how I feel about him. Right. Um, and so I was, a part of me was like in this weird anticipation moment because it's Quentin Tarantino and I associate him with shocking levels of violence sometimes. Yeah. So we go, th- we get through this movie, and we're sitting through this very long movie, right? Um, and I was almost tense, waiting for the moments when I was ready to like shield my eyes from the shocking violence that was bound to come, right? And then it didn't happen, mm-hmm. and then it didn't happen, and then it didn't happen, and then we get to the moment where it does happen. So I'm like so unprepared, you know, and it's not long; it's like five minutes, right? Out of 
I don't know, what, two and a half hours almost? Yeah. And and yet it still was enough to make me go, oh, God, oh, oh, and yeah. cringe and turn away and block my eyes. Um, and so I just, I'm always, I don't know, like, I don't even know if it's something I didn't like about it, mm-hmm. but it's just... Quentin Tarantino movies leave me feeling very confused. <laughs> yeah. And I tend to go to movies because I I deal with a lot of really serious stuff in the rest of my world. I go to movies ten- typically to like just enjoy myself and be like, ah, fiction is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I, but I can't do that with Quentin Tarantino movies. So, um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah no, I, I get what you're saying. Although, I know how I feel about about it, and this, for this movie anyway. Um, so when it comes to violence, you know, I don't uh, typically have a problem with it. I mean, not that it exists in films or how realistic it is. As with most things, it's all about its context. Um, like Kill Bill, for instance. Mm-hmm. Like, the, especially the first Kill Bill. I mean, he paints the walls red with how right. much blood gets thrown around. But it doesn't bother me because of how it's done. The context of the movie, it's ridiculous, right? Someone's arms get chopped off and there's just a geyser of blood shooting across the wall, which is in no way realistic. Sure, it's red blood and it's shooting all over the place. You know, but it's like, well, that's it's it's silly almost, right? So it's just it's almost it's funny. Over the top. It's so over the top you just can't take it seriously, right? Um, you know, and like I said, I I like horror movies, so it's not like I'm so violence is not a thing. I mean, it, it makes me cringe when I see it, right. you know, depending on how it's filmed. <clears throat> but I don't have a problem with it, per se. In this movie, though, when you spent two plus hours <clears throat> having one type of movie where there <laughs> isn't any violence. Well, I mean, well, Brad Pitt punches a guy a few times. Right. But ultimately, that's it. And it's just about these actors, you know. But then finally you get to that end and the violence happens and it as i like to say it goes to 11 right like immediately and it is film it is it just felt exploitative like oh yeah well we got we got a this is where the violence happens and we're going to make it as gross as we can possibly make it right and as brutal as it could possibly look in a movie that hasn't been gross or brutal it just seemed like i know it just felt distasteful and especially since it's retaliatory the, is what it feels like. Yeah, and especially since of the three... So it's, it happens against the three Manson members who come. And um, and the worst of the violence happens to the two women right. out of the three. And it was noticeable. Mm-hmm. I can't... I mean, maybe it's because it's... I know it's a Tarantino film and he has a problem, you know, when it comes to this sort of thing. I mean, The Hateful Eight was three hours of one woman getting the hell beat out of her, essentially, mm-hmm. what I felt like it was, you know? And then the whole thing with, uh, you know, Uma Thurman's car crash and Kill right. Bill, which he was maybe a little responsible for. Maybe. Maybe, you know? And just other things, it was just noticeable that of the three, you know, what are supposed to be villains come into this house and then the violence happens and I'm feeling sorry for them. Right. Especially those two women, because it just felt, I don't know, it felt the line was crossed. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't put my finger on why it felt distasteful, but it did. Right. Well, and upon reflection, like, I definitely was really uncomfortable. And yes, it is crazy. Like, 
they all go through all three of the the Mansonites go through like they they are they have painful deaths right yeah. which is almost retaliatory for the fact that in real life the they in, inflicted um, crazy terrible things on Sharon Tate her unborn child and her friends, her friends yeah. right um, so it was there was like an element of retaliation in this movie like sure. what if um, but yes, the two women, um, you know, one woman gets um, her head bashed into multiple sources for no good reason. She's Both dead. women get that treatment. Right. She's dead after maybe the second or third right. thing. But then the second woman um, is, you know, she gets her face smashed in by getting hit with a can of food. And, like, you're not supposed to feel sorry for her. Like, she's, she's trying to murder him. Right. But then... But then she also gets mauled by the dog. But then she also gets her head smashed into things. But then she also falls into a pool. And then she also gets burned alive. Right. Right. And you're just like, yeah, I'm uncomfortable with all of this. Yeah. And it doesn't feel right at at all. Right. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I but it. it like so, I was super uncomfortable, and then I left, and I was like, it almost felt like retaliation because they were so brutal mm-hmm. in the murder of Sharon Tate and and the and her friends. Right. That it was kind of like Quentin Tarantino was like vicariously exacting re- retribution. Right. Through this alternative because viewing because right. the thing was, I think, and you and I both talked about this at the end of the movie is. Especially once I realized, oh, that's, oh, the Manson family's in this. This is going to be about the man. That's Sharon Tate. Wait, wait a minute. Like, I mean, those pieces are happening mm-hmm. for me in the in the movie theater that I was expecting as we get closer to the end. I was like, if they show the murder of Sharon Tate, I'm going to be really upset. Like, I, they I were was worried about setting that us too. up for that. Yep. And I was getting ready to be like, nope. I'm not, I can't finish this movie mm-hmm. because I really thought that's where he was going. Yeah. Um, and then his twist ending is, is kind of this, this what if moment, yeah. right? Like if instead of, of going up to the man, uh, to Sharon, to the home of Sharon Tate and yeah. Robin Polanski, if, you know, Rick Dalton is drunk and yelling at them and that shifts the right. focus of rage. Um, but so it's kind of like somehow Quentin Tarantino is playing out this twisted fantasy of these horrible, horrible people doing horrible, horrible things. Mm-hmm. So we're going to exact that retribution on right. in this alternate version of, of events. Right. So, yeah. yeah. And that ultimately gets me to my, the last thing I'll say as far as what I, and it took me a while to decide how I felt about this. Um, so like, um, yeah, he ultimately, he, you know, he retcons history again, mm-hmm. right? right? So like in, in Glorious Bastards, he retcons all of World War II, right? <laughs> With uh, the super bloody murder of Adolf Hitler and a bunch of other Nazis, you know, you know, and which is fine because, well, again, that movie was filmed kind of like Kill Bill and where the violence is so over the top gratuitous, it's kind of silly. Right. And then ultimately, it's a revenge fantasy, you know, for, you know, for the Holocaust. And who can't get behind that? 
Right. You know, that, so I get it. I get that. That makes sense to me. I don't understand what the point of this movie is. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I don't get the point of weaving these two made-up guys in with real-life American history to an extent. Right. Uh, especially bringing in uh, Sharon Tate and the Manson family. Like when when Rick and Cliff first, at the beginning of the movie, after he's met with Al Pacino, and they drive back to Rick's house, right? And they drive past... Like the street sign that shows the street they live on. If if you're versed in the Manson stuff and Sharon Tate, that will be that you would recognize that that's the street they lived on, and that Sharon and Roman Polanski lived on. And the movie score purposely plays a piece of music that is absolutely sinister sounding. The music changes to something that sounds sinister. Right. When they're driving up to their house, and when they you when you see who their next door neighbors are, like right. on purpose, so it seeds this thing, so you know that it is building to this real life horrible event the entire time. You know that this is coming. Right. I did not, for the record, because uh-huh. I didn't do any research and I was not paying attention, and I don't the Manson family yeah. and everything just is is a creeps me out to yeah. an indescribable degree. So I was not aware of any of those yeah. things at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Okay. You know, but, I still, but I still like the score, especially right. what I felt was real noticeable. Then eventually you actually see Charles Manson for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and why? I mean, what, is he using... And ultimately he doesn't show the murder of Sharon Tate, thank God. Right. Because I was going to have a problem with that. And her family apparently had her sister's blessing Approval, right. of what he did in this movie, which is fine, which is good, good. But like you know, but why? I mean, was using like the the threat of this real life uh, murder uh, to give his story more oomph? You know, I don't know. Uh, those murders are considered, you know, by some to be the end of the hippie movement, the end of the summer love, if you will. Mm-hmm. Like that was like kind of the exclamation point ending of that and maybe he's trying to show that and that his ultimate retcon of those murders maybe means he's wanting to show an alternate version of history where that doesn't happen in this glorified version of southern of hollywood mm-hmm. in america can continue right you know but i don't know if that's what he intended i just know that ultimately the use of tate and her friends and the manson family all felt like a big tease Mm. throughout the movie and a tease that I found distasteful ultimately. Even though they don't end up showing that murder, the use of the thread of it throughout the movie, I don't know. Why couldn't they have all been... Why couldn't they have all been fictional characters? Why couldn't have the Bruce Lee character been some... another, like, knockoff, you know wannabe Bruce Lee actor. Right. You know, and then it's, instead of saying, yeah, this is Bruce Lee acting like an asshole, mm-hmm. and now you're disrespecting, you know, a whole lot of people for no real reason. Right. You know, I don't know. There's a lot of choices that I feel, I don't know. Right. I would agree. I think uh, there is, there is, there are things that Quentin Tarantino did in this movie that were, I think that if you were going with the artiste 
uh, motive or motif there, then you would be like, ah, it's provocative, right? But it also, or, like, that's one version. One is the provocative artist is trying to evoke strong emotions in the audience. Mm -hmm. Or you're just being a dick. Right. Like, you know, not everything has deep, right. uh, like, intentions or motivations behind it. Sometimes you're, you kind of made a decision right. where you're just an asshole. Right. It's like uh, when you were talking about, like, the, the, the racist things that you'll hear uh-huh. in his movies. Like, in this movie, certainly in Reservoir Dogs, I remember... Uh-huh. Probably in Pulp Fiction. I haven't seen that in a while. In Hateful Eight. The Hateful Eight, for sure. Django Unchained. Like, Jan- I mean. Uh, and here's the thing about that of why feeling is, like, uh, especially for things that are set in the like period pieces that are set in the past. And the excuse you hear always is, well, that's just how it was. You know, that's how people acted and said blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah back then. Okay, sure. But that doesn't mean you need to have it to that degree. Right. Especially in a more modern set movie. Is is this act of racism part of the plot? Right. Is it driving anything, or is it there? And is, and is your excuse, well, that's just how it was back then. Well, I guess, but it wasn't that. But not everybody was like that. Mm-hmm. So why is it here? Is it here because you feel you need it to lend authenticity to your movie, or is it here because maybe you th- actually think it maybe it's a little funny to you? Right. And I feel with Quentin Tarantino, it might be a little more the latter. Right. Well, also, if if you try and pull the, well, that's just how it was back then. Right. Well, then your entire movie has lost its its whole thing because your entire movie has a fictionalized all like ending. Right. It changes that's not, history. That literally, it's not how it was back then. Right. So if you get, like, why do you get to change history in this aspect? Right. But have to be historically gotta accurate. Got to be, gotta be his- historically accurate with the racism. But I can change all the murder stuff I want. Right. You know, exactly. Want. Yeah. I get, so, as I get what you're saying. So uh, so that's why that always falls flat with me. Yeah. Or, you know, anyway, it just, yeah. So I always, like I said, I have complicated feelings whenever I see a Quentin Tarantino movie. Sure. And I think we've really illustrated that here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, this is one of the longest episodes we've ever had. Interesting. On so. a movie that we aren't even sure that we liked. Yeah. Yeah. But that, But I knew that was going to happen because it is so... Mm-hmm. You know, it's just so different. It's not like, yeah, it's not a for sure, you know, crowd pleaser. Right. Yeah. So, and it's, yeah. But I like that it exists. A movie like this is fun to talk about mm-hmm. uh, for its faults and, and what have you. So. Correct. Okay. Well, I think we're done then. I think so. All right. So that's what we thought about, in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> that was not a nutshell. Uh, no, that was, uh Yeah. Almost as long as the movie itself. No, not really. Um, but yeah, so uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But next week, Simpler Times. Yes. I'm so excited for next week. Yes, definitely uh, not as thought-provoking, one assumes. Hey, 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 hey. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with watching uh, The Rock and Jathan Statham, you know, punch things. Punch it out. Yeah. And Idris Elba. Don't forget yep. Idris Elba. Idris Elba, as uh, we see the Fast and Furious spin off Hobbs and Shaw. 
Hobbs and Calvin. I do really want to say Calvin and Hobbs all the time, but it's Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah. And Idris Elba. And let's be fair. This movie could be terrible, but I will tolerate a lot to see Idris Elba in a movie. The thing is, I don't think it's going to be terrible. I don't think it is either. Yeah. So... Yeah, I, I think, think it'll be fun. Yeah, I think you're actually going to come back and be like, all right, so I'm not a fan of the Fast and Furious series. Yeah. But I'm this not. movie was pretty good or pretty I'm actually expecting to, to find it that way. Right. I think this is going to be better than those movies. Did you know that they're making a Fast and Furious 9? You're welcome. No, thank you. I feel like that no, is the perfect you. note to end this podcast on. Yeah. Congratulations, everybody. There will be a Fast and Furious 9. And Dustin and I Trump are going to go see Trump it. is president. Hey. That's hey, they're hey. not unrelated. Hey, hey, hey. All right. So thank you for listening. Also, uh, yeah, Serenity, episode 14. We've okay, there we go. So, uh, Yeah, so but this was episode 95 of the I Cold know. Beer and Cold Movie Podcast. Thanks for giving us a listen. Oh, we've like one we've gone too long i was gonna bring up that your cousin katie emailed us about spider-man far from home yes thank you for emailing us katie that was super cool information yes that was really neat well well, maybe if we have more time next week we'll bring up the story she told yes about the her family in the making of the movie so yeah but thanks for emailing us katie um you can email us as well if you want to tell us what you thought about this uh weird movie uh to ddkpodcasting at gmail.com uh, you can find us on SoundCloud and iTunes and a bunch of other apps where podcasts are found. And you can leave us reviews and whatnot at any of those places. That'd be awesome. Uh, also, I am on a uh, now on a movie review app called Letterboxd. It Ooh. is like a social media app, kind of. Except, you know, it's not like you can leave pictures and, like, your lame uh, political views or whatever. It's all about movies. You can, like, find and follow people. Who and see what they're watching. You can find other people's reviews and you can make your own reviews. They run on a five star system. You can even write out little reviews. Uh, but anyway, I'm on there as Dustin PDX. If you want to come find me, I'll post reviews of anything we see, even stuff we don't podcast about. So, anyway. All right. That's well, that. With that, we are concluding our 95th episode. Oh my gosh, are we going to do something super cool for our 100th episode? I'll have to think about that. I think yeah. we should. Yeah, for sure. Okay, but until episode 96 in uh, Hobbs and Shaw. Go see a movie. And thanks for listening.